This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Good evening and welcome to the CAPS Forum on Ethics and Public Policy. I want to situate tonight's event in history. Um, This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, which is a good thing. Uh, It's also the 60th anniversary of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And finally, we're on the verge, you might even say birthing, the Tumash Heritage National Marine Sanctuary uh, off the coast. And um, I think that, that deserves a round of applause right there. So tonight we're very pleased to present Miss Erica Guys and celebrate her new book, Water Always Wins. I first met Erica uh, at uh, Vermont Law School in 2010, um, and we, we studied a bit, and uh, we had a beer after class and, and hiking around South Royalton, a, a town of 700 people that hosts a, gra- a, a law school. It's crazy, um, but it's fun. Um, I later discovered that Erica is, in fact, an outstanding, award-winning independent journalist, researcher, and photographer. I think we'll see some of her photographs today. Um, uh, And she's been writing on science and the environment for more than 14 years. Um, And I use her work in my class in environmental ethics all the time. Um, And you probably... Most of you have read her work, knowing or not, uh, in the National Geographic, The Guardian, The Economist, NCIA, very often, in my experience, The New York Times. And she even had um, uh, a regular environmental column in Forbes magazine. Um, and as a National Geographic... Oh, I'll skip that. But, um, she's a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists and is the co-founder of both This Week in Earth and Climate Confidential. Now, after all this work as, a, in, um, as an investigative journalist, she has the opportunity to break out, and maybe she has a few things on her mind that she doesn't usually say as a journalist in producing uh, what we hope, the first in what we hope is a number of outstanding books, Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Miss Erica Guys. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm not going to be returning to my seat, so somebody can feel free to sit there if they want. Um, so I'd like to start by asking everyone to think about their favorite body of water. And, you know, whether it's a lake or a river, a creek, um, I think often, you know, people have personal experiences with water when they're, when they're young or with their family. And these places come to be very special to us. And I like to invoke those memories because I think um, in the dominant culture, we've become very used to water Uh, being handled by the experts. You know, it's delivered to us, it's taken from us, we're disconnected from it and its processes. And um, so 
remembering your favorite body of water, and I, I, almost everyone I've asked has one, <laughs> so I suspect most of you do. Um, it, you know, it helps us think of water in a different way as, um, you know, something that we care about and something that is doing its own thing, uh, whether it's in a lake or running the course of a river. So I would say that the, the gist of my book is basically asking us to re-examine our relationship with water and our um, kind of preconceptions about it in the dominant culture. And we really tend to think about water either as a resource, a commodity, or a threat. So it's something we need or it's something dangerous. Um, and so this book is really about changing the culture of how we relate to water. Um, and with that kind of threat commodity mindset, we're, we have a very control-oriented approach to it. We're trying to control where it goes and when. And um, But that's, that's not how everyone around the world relates to water. And in fact, this woman here... Um, is a marsh dweller, and she lives on the Mesopotamian marshes of Iraq. And uh, I went there a couple of years ago, and these folks are living in a way that people have lived on top of water for 9,000 years. Their culture predates the Sumerian civilization, which was about 6,000 years ago. Um, and it's incredible. This grass that she has is called Phragmites, which has become sort of an invasive scourge elsewhere in the world, but it's native to these marshes. It grows to like 20 feet. Um, you can eat the root of it. Uh, they use it for all their house building, um, their animal paddocks. They have uh, water buffalo um, that kind of swim around and eat what they want and then come back and they milk them. Um, so it's a really, really interesting culture, and you know, in contrast to what we generally do in mainstream development of, you know, oh, it's a wetland, we better drain it <laughs> and build something on top of it. They're actually living on it, and they understand the um, amazing resources and, and food and sustenance and housing material that, that this um, environment provides. So that's just one example um, of the places I went and the people I met. Uh, I also went to China Washington State, Peru, Kenya, England, um, of course, all over California. I'm from California. Um, and I found people who are finding innovative ways to work with water, to collaborate with water instead of this kind of control mindset. So let's see. I've got to do two things here. Voila. Okay. So, um, you know, the climate, the International Climate Conference is happening right now. And um, I think people are really understanding that climate change is here, it's now, and a lot of that is through water change. You know, climate change is water change, and we're seeing these very um, extreme highs and lows with the flooding and the drought. Um, and when there are these kinds of water disasters, hi, Nancy, <laughs> um, you know, the dominant culture's approach is generally to kind of respond to that disruption by calling for more control, higher levees, bigger drains, longer aqueducts, um, but one thing that I really stress in the book is that it's not just climate change that's causing these water disasters. It's also our development choices and even the way that we're trying to control water, especially the way. So that's urban sprawl, industrial agriculture, and gray infrastructure, which is sort of like the heavily concrete engineering way that we relate to water in our culture. So... Um, 
The problem with uh, the control infrastructure is that it's brittle. You know, it has a certain capacity, and when that exceeds, it's, it breaks. And then um, we have more extreme disasters because we've come to rely on these systems. And as these systems are beginning to fail more and more often, um, people are starting to face this truth, uh, which is that water always wins sooner or later. And the benefit of natural systems is that they're, they're more flexible. They have more flux kind of built into them. And um, I think there's a question that Greg and I are going to talk a little bit more about, about um, you know, how we got here, how we got to relating to water in this way. Um, but I, I'll just say that the, the dominant culture's mindset is very centered around human desires, and humans are most important. And that often leads to this kind of single-minded problem-solving, like, um, you know, we need water, so let's build the dam and bring it from somewhere else. Or, you know, we're worried about flooding, so let's build the levee. Um, but the reason that, that putting ourselves first in that way is breaking down is because these solutions ignore the systems of which water is a part. You know, it's systems theory. It's all of these complex relationships that water has with underground, with rock, soil, microbes, beavers, and humans. Um, so, you know, a healthy ecosystem, when it has space to do its thing, it can be resilient to certain levels of disruption in a way that uh, something with very, very specific specs can't. Um, and basically, it's our incomplete understanding of that complexity that is causing all of these unintended consequences with our, our development choices. So um, this is a nod to John McPhee, The Control of Nature. <laughs> um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Uh, but he, he wrote a book that was very much about different ways in which humans were excessively trying to control nature. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to really emphasize that this is not the only way that we can relate to water. And um, around the world, I met a lot of indigenous cultures and agrarian people who live close to the land who instead uh, viewed water not as a what, but a who, a friend, relative. Uh, and the importance of that is it generates a kind of reciprocity. You know, we have a very take kind of, you know, what can water do for us? Um, but when you have that other uh, way of thinking of it as a, a living entity, there's caretaking that's implicit in that. And so um, it's understood that with the rights, that the things that water brings to us, there's a responsibility to care for the system and ensure that it continues to work. And I just want to add that it's also an environmental justice issue. Um, there was a really interesting 40-year meta-study that showed that um, dams and those kinds of interventions brought water to 20% of the world's people, but took water away from 24% of the world's people. So there's a lot of um, ecological damage that goes along with dams, but it's also a, a social justice issue. And similarly, levees protect some people while elevating the river and increasing flood risk for other people who perhaps can't afford the levees. Um, and even the people who ostensibly benefit are actually putting themselves more at risk. So with a levee, you build a big levee and everybody's like, oh, look, it's safe. Let's build behind there. And then when the levee fails, water people have a joke that there are two kinds of levees, the ones that have failed and the ones that are going to fail. Um, 
So, you know, sooner or later, those people are going to be um, facing disaster and more people if they have had this, like, false sense of security. And there's a similar phenomenon called the reservoir effect, which is you have a big reservoir, and uh, there's this whole field of, um, what's it called, socio-hydrology, and it's basically like human interactions with water. So, you know, you see the big reservoir and you think, oh, there's plenty of water, don't really need to conserve until the situation is really dire. Um, And also, like, increase of demand. We have more water, we can grow more development, we can build a lot more things. Um, So it's a kind of a vicious cycle. So these people around the world... Oh, I just want to add, the things on my slide are um, the scale of the way in which we have um, dramatically altered the natural water cycle. Um, humans have actually filled or drained 87% of the world's wetlands. Uh, we've intervened on two-thirds of the world's largest rivers with dams and diversions. And just since 1992, the land area covered by pavement in our cities has doubled. And that's important because you know if land is covered by pavement, the water can't sink in, and so that can cause flooding. And then it also... Um, deprives the area of that water because it's rushed out of the city and if it instead goes underground then you have it for the, the dry season. Um, so that's a, that's a big part. When I say that development is part of what's causing these problems, this is what I mean. Like at this scale, we've hit these tipping points where the interventions that we were using are, are breaking down. So the people that I met around the world who are instead are approaching water with like a real curiosity um, and respect. I have come to think of them as water detectives because they really want to know what's water up to and, you know, what's it, what's it doing Um, in its various ways. And how can we make space for water in our own human habitats? And so these are hydrologists, they're scientists of various kinds, engineers, ecologists, landscape architects, urban planners, um, there are many different roles uh, for people who, who want to be water detectives. And they have been asking a question that is really fundamental to my book, which is, what does water want? And that sounds a little kooky, I think, to you know a lot of modern ears, but it's really in keeping with this idea of understanding that water has agency and that it's going to go where it wants to go and we need to figure out ways to work with it and accommodate it. And to a great extent, modern development has eliminated the slow phases, the wetlands, the floodplains, um, high altitude mountain meadows and forests that generate rain. And um, so what water wants, um, in my opinion, is uh, to reclaim access to these slow phases, to reclaim areas of land where it can slow and re-acquaint re, um, itself with the groundwater because that's a very important system that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and yeah, I, I'll just add like one thing that they often start with is a field called historical ecology. So, you know, in all of our cities, a lot of these um, streams and creeks have been filled in, paved over, put into pipes, and so we don't even understand where a lot of the water is in our own communities and and where it's going and what it's doing. So the benefit of um, this um, historical ecology is basically like making a map of where it is because, um, you know, there's a reason that an apartment built on a wetland is going to flood regularly. And so 
you know, if a city or if people who are working with water understand this, they can look for opportunities to, to give water space where, where it wants to go. So this is my slow water manifesto, um, which is kind of a, a link, a nod to the slow food movement and, and has some commonality in that it's meant to draw people's attention to where water comes from and how its management um, affects people in the environment. And there are certain criteria of slow water, um, in my opinion. Uh, so they are unique to each place. You, you know, you can't just kind of stamp them out cookie cutter. Uh, every place has unique geology, ecology, uh, culture. And so um, it's collaborating within those systems uh, rather than trying to change them or control them. Um, they're distributed across the landscape. So our, our water system today is very centralized. You know, we bring it all to one place. We clean it and we bring the sewage all to one place um, and kind of managed by experts. So when I say distributed, if you think about that 87% of the wetlands that are lost, you can understand why we need to make little small spaces for water where we can all along the water's path, all through its watershed. So many, many small projects um, scattered across the landscape add up to a, a significant impact. It's kind of similar to the idea of how solar panels on everyone's roof add up to a lot of electricity. Um, slow water is ideally local, helping us to understand um, the water availability in our own area and live within that and not be taking water from other places and other people. Um, and in a dry place like this, that can sound like, you know, <laughs> that'll never happen or that's not possible. Um, but there's so much more that we can do to be capturing the rain that does come and to move it into the ground where it's available locally. Um, it's socially just, not taking from some to give to others, not protecting some at the expense of others. Um, and there's a real community engagement component to this. So some of the projects I saw, like in India or Peru, um, people in the community are actually maintaining these systems and working together, and then they're also sharing it communally. Um, and so there's a real kind of visceral understanding of how it works, and there's also um, a very personal commitment to it and maintaining it and taking care of it. Um, that also is kind of hard to imagine in the United States, um, but there are kind of degrees of community engagement. Um, certainly there are a lot of opportunities for people to get involved um, on the, their city level, uh, you know, trying to restore a creek or something. But also there are things like um, education component. Um, for example, there's a wetland in Northern California where uh, they treat, they use the wetland to treat sewage, and it's a park, and people come and they walk around, and there's signage explaining, you know, what's happening there. And similarly, there are, like, um, recharge projects in southern Arizona where it's a major water feature, and the wildlife come, and the people come. And so there are different levels of community engagement is, is my point. Um, so this is just to say, I just want to really make the point that surface water and groundwater are the same water. We have a, you know, a long history in California of like, oh, the river's running low. Well, we'll just pump some groundwater and you know, then we'll have more water. But in fact, um, pumping groundwater depletes surface water because they are connected. When the surface water runs low, if the groundwater is high, it actually can feed um, the streams from below. And one thing I learned from one of my water detective sources is that in the Western US, in fact, you know, we think of streams as seasonal, like they only flow in the winter, but in fact, they, a lot of them used to flow year-round 
because the groundwater system was healthy and it was supplying them in that way. Um, so we deplete groundwater by pumping and also by the really strong way that we've controlled rivers so they're not accessing their floodplain and refilling um, the groundwater in that way. Um, so all of the slow water projects around the world that I found were basically trying to slow water on the land in some way to help it move underground to kind of heal this surface groundwater relationship and all of the incredible things that happen when they are connected. So this is Peru. Um, these, this is very, very high in the Andes Mountains, about 15,000 feet elevation. And this green, tufty stuff uh, is called the Bofadales, and it's, uh, or a cushion bog. Um, bogs are peatlands. Peatlands are incredible. They store, um, they cover just 3% of the global land area, but they store 10% of all fresh water and 30% of the world's soil carbon. So they're incredibly important. And in the Andes, uh, it's kind of like, Peru is kind of like California in that there's a, a long dry season and most of the water comes during a, a few months. And um, also, the vast majority of people live along the coast and rely on water from the mountains. And with climate change, a lot of the glaciers are melting and um, Peru is one of the most water insecure countries in the world. Um, so... Water managers there about 10 years ago started getting really, really concerned about this because already in the capital city of Lima, there's about 5% of the population who uh, don't even have access to water, and they're only able to deliver to people maybe 21 hours a day for people who do have water, so everybody has to have a storage tank, and it's complicated, um, and it's getting worse. So they passed a series of national laws that require water utilities take a percentage of their um, uh, money from their utility bill and invest it in infrastructure, natural infrastructure. So all water utilities invest in infrastructure, but what's different about this is a percentage of it has to go to natural infrastructure, such as protecting these high-altitude wetlands that slow the water. And this is becoming even more important as the glaciers melt because um, that water storage is no longer available. Um, so, you know, sometimes when people talk about nature-based solutions, they think like, oh, that's nice, but, it, you know, it can't really be a significant part of the solution. But in fact, um, it's really a question of scale, that distributed across the landscape idea. And so Peru, in making this a national policy, it's really exciting because it's a place where we are going to soon be able to see the impacts of this at scale. Um, I just want to point out this picture on the right with all yellow. That peatland is dead and dying, dying and dead. Um, and it's because of peat thievery. People are actually going up there and cutting out these big chunks to sell to the nursery trade. You know, I don't know if you guys are into plants, but you can often buy peat at the nursery, and you know, it's supposed to be a nice thing to grow your plants in. Um, please don't buy peat. <laughs> peat is really, really important in its um, native habitat. And uh, once it's cut out like this, the rest of it dies because it needs that continuity to continue to hold the water. So some of the money from the utilities is going to surveillance to like try to prevent this from happening, and some of it is going to restoration um, to try to, to restore these. And there's actually a really interesting um, tradition of caring for these peatlands and expanding because the people who live there, um, you know, it's an important place for their livestock uh, to get water and whatnot. And so um, 
they have some techniques for kind of expanding the bofidales uh, as well um, that they're starting to implement, which is pretty interesting. And then another thing that they're um, investing in in the highlands of Peru, oops, there you go. So this little snake thing that you see is called an amuna. An amuna is a Quechua word that means to retain. And this is a 1,400-year-old technique um, that uh, communal farmers are still using in the Andes in several villages. Um, the Huari people are the ones who um, innovated this. And basically, this is very high elevation, um, you know, maybe like 13,000, 14,000 feet. And during the rainy season, when they have a lot of heavy flows, they divert water into this little canal, and they run it along to a kind of a natural infiltration basin. And then they're letting that water soak underground. And it moves underground much, much more slowly than it would on the surface. You know, on the surface, it would just run down. But because it's moving through rocks and, um, you know, dirt, it, it takes a lot longer. And so then there's a spring lower down on the mountain that the water emerges from. And then they can harvest it from the spring and, and then use it to water their crops. So it extends their water availability into the dry season. And it's something that they've been doing for hundreds of years. And... Um, but it, some of these systems have been abandoned, and so the utilities funding is going to go to restore some of these systems. And, um, you know, that water ultimately benefits the cities down on the plateau because they use it to water their crops, and then it moves underground again and ultimately comes out down on the rivers. And there's been some really interesting science. Um, there's a growing body of scientific research um, that shows how effective these kinds of innovations were, and there was a, a, a study published in Nature in 2019 specifically about this intervention and how long it delayed water availability from like two weeks to eight months on average, about 45 days, and also the quantity. And they did some modeling just for this one watershed. There are three that um, feed Lima, and it was going to make up double the deficit that Lima currently has. So it's a significant um, intervention. And th that's just for the Amunas. That's not including the Bofidales. Um This woman, um, oops, you guys can't see that. Um, her name is uh, Lucila Castillo Flores, and she's one of the, the communal farmers in this uh, village I went to called Wamantanga. And she said, if we plant the water, we can harvest the water. And so it's this really you know, caretaking uh, mentality. And I, I encountered that in Kenya, too, like where um, people in the lowlands are the water consumers and the people in the highland are the water producers. Um, so, it, you know, I like these ways of talking about water because it's acknowledging the role and the relationship that we have with it. Um, so I'll just add that, like, the science is, is a growing body, um, but that kind of research is really important to help decision makers have uh, a basis to allocate money to expanding these interventions. Um, I think... I think I'm going way over my time. Um, I'll just very briefly talk about um, this is a project in Seattle. I think a lot of us are used to, I saw one just as I was driving here, you know, your creek and a concrete channel. Um, this is very common. If, if a stream isn't buried, it, it's like this. Um, and uh, so in Seattle, they were having a problem with one of their creeks uh, that was like this. It was flooding regularly, uh, flooding homes, flooding a road, flooding a school. Um, and in a lot of places, like if, a, if people are trying to restore a stream, maybe they'll like kind of reintroduce the S shape, the natural meanders, and take out the concrete and plant some native plants. 
but um, people were realizing that these systems required constant ongoing maintenance and the life that returned to them was not very diverse. And, you know, in Seattle, they still have a lot of um, salmon runs and there's a, a national mandate to try to care for salmon when you do a creek project and, and salmon were not appreciating their efforts. Um, so basically... Um, what one biologist who worked for the city realized was that um, it's not just the stream we see, it's the stream under the stream. It's something called the hyporheic zone, and that's from Greek, hypo is under, rheic is flow. This is not the aquifer, this is an ecotone, a, a zone in between. Um, water can move up and down, but it's also flowing downstream, but again, very, very much more slowly because uh, it's going through all of the rock and soil. And when you have a... a urban stream syndrome, which is what ecologists call that other system, it is fast water. You know, you're straightening the water, you're worried about flooding, you're trying to move it away, and so it's scouring, and it's scouring away all of the soft material at the bottom where the hyperreic zone is. And the problem with that is it's kind of like our, our gut microbiome. You know, you have like little micro buddies in there who are helping you out and keeping you well and same thing with the stream if they don't have their micro buddies um, you know there's all kinds of important geochemical processing that happens um, and base of the food web that's just not happening because that's missing so this woman Catherine Lynch in Seattle proposed as far as I know the first in the world effort to recreate a missing hyperreic zone and also to inoculate it with life um, so ecologists tend to have this, like, if we build it, they will come attitude. You know, we'll make it look nice and habitat-y and things will come back. Um, but they were finding that wasn't true. And, and in this case, like, one, uh, one researcher told me, you know, when your headwaters are a Home Depot parking lot, <laughs> you know, the, nobody's going to be coming. And so they actually inoculated from a wilder stream and then impl implanted them in the uh, hyperreic zone. So um, I think Greg and I are going to talk a little bit more about that, so I'll keep it brief. Um, but they, uh, the, Catherine had a really hard time convincing the city to do this, even though it was really inexpensive compared to the cost of the project. Um, so they agreed to do a series of scientific studies to show that it worked, and they were very um, successful. And so now, you know, incorporating the hyperreic zone is a part of all of Seattle's projects, or at least they're considering it for all of their projects. And it's expanding um, into the wider world in Washington and beyond. Um, and so I'll just give a couple of results. So this is Catherine in the front here. And this is what the stream looks like at this point. So they bought out houses that were flooding regularly, about 10 or 12 houses, so they expanded the width, but then they also put about eight feet of material at the bottom to recreate that hyperreic zone. And they did all kinds of modeling to see like how the water was gonna flow and to create these log systems that would help water move down underground into the hyperreic zone in the way that it would in a natural system. So one study modeled that, that the physical movement of the water to see that it was in fact going into the hyperreic zone and they found that it was doing that 89 times more than uh, before, which isn't that surprising because it basically didn't exist <laughs> before they did this. Um, and you know, this project was just 1600 feet, so really small. But because they did their historical ecology and they chose two floodplains, it's been it's had a, kind of an outsized impact. And you know they want to do more, but that was already a good start. So you know every little bit adds up. Um, 
so for the biology, uh, you know, they, they took some samples to find their critters. And the restored sections had seven times more crustaceans, worms, and insects, and much greater species diversity than um, the stream that wasn't impacted. And then the other thing is pollution. So the urban area um, creates massive runoff and uh, crazy quantities of chemicals. They measured 1,900 chemicals in the stream, and that's very, very typical. It's like lawn fertilizer, brake pad dust, you know, all kinds of things. And none of that is monitored or cleaned because it's non-point source pollution, and so there's no regulation for it. Uh, but they found that um, a, a packet of water moving through a 15-foot section of the hyperreg zone, so it was underground for 15 feet for about three hours, it reduced 78% of the chemicals by at least half. So, um, you know, if you have a healthy hyperreg zone, if you have more of this happening, um, you have more opportunities to clean the water. So since they did this, the city hasn't flooded. It's a great park. Neighbors and kids love to go there. Um, The stream temperature and the flow are more consistent year-round because the water is being supplied from below. And um, Chinook salmon returned and actually spawned in this hyperreg zone that they created. So that was very cool. So um, that's the gist. Uh, I think it's... I'm sorry, (laughs) Greg, I went away over the time. and basically, it's just about like uh, reconnecting people with with water and with uh, what water is up to. Um, and I have let me show you. Yeah, so this is my website for the book. Um, in case you want uh, more information, and um, I've done a bunch of you know like podcasts and radio and TV interviews and things like that. So you can find some of those there too. In case you want more. <laughs> Is this on? Okay. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Um, I guess uh, we better cut to the big question then. Um, you know, reading the book and knowing you, uh, I don't think you would disagree if I put you in a tradition um, of thinkers that include Aldo Leopold and Lynn White and others who focus on um, undermining the ethics of the ethic of dominion um, over nature and in my class we cover this as uh, the great chain of being the water exists for the sake of the soil for the sake of the uh, the plants which exist for the sake of the animals which exist for the sake of the what they used to call man and <laughs> then beyond earth there's the angels and the um, and God who represents ultimate reality and moral perfection and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the modern American atheist, the typical one, simply knocks God and the angels off and calls that a rebellion. <laughs> and we're conveniently at the top. So how does this, um, how would you put this in your words in terms of uh, gray infrastructure, slow water? Um, how did we get to where we are today? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one one person, uh, an indigenous person that I interviewed, um, she called it hydrocolonialism, <laughs> and I think that's really really apt, you know, um, because you know what we see around the world, the dominant culture is really Eurocentric uh, colonialism that's been exported all over, and so for that reason, I think you know I turn back to the Judeo-Christian tradition because that's what uh, you know what what they were spreading, are spreading, and um, you know there's the early separation in the Book of Genesis. Uh, you know, nature is created for man and man should go forth and conquer. And there are different interpretations and different ways of reading that. There are modern Christians who believe in creation care, so I'm, I'm not bashing. <laughs> um, but um, it really did set up this idea that nature is there for us to exploit. And I, I see the great chain of being as a kind of a hierarchy that was established at a really convenient time, um, you know, right before the Industrial Revolution and very widespread, aggressive uh, period in colonialism that basically justifies the exploitation of nature um, for our means. And I think there's another colonial aspect, which is like you have people coming from an area that they know and maybe their ancestors have lived for millennia, uh, and then they go to a new place where they don't know it, they don't understand it. Um, maybe they're a bit uh, vulnerable because they don't understand it. Um, and so there became this very, like, kind of us-against-them mentality. And, you know, in the literature, there's a, a, an era of naturalism, which is sort of like nature is out to get us and we need to, you know, buckle down. And I think uh, with the um, advent of fossil fuels and kind of the amplification of our power in that way, that really uh, tilted the battle in the favor of us to the point where, you know, we are really um, exploiting uh, things to a degree that uh, is causing all this damage. Um, in California, if you ask a typical Californian, you say, what is drought, or why do we have drought? They're going to say, we didn't get enough rain. And then they might say, well, it's probably being accelerated by climate change. And if you ask them further, they're going to tilt their head like you're some kind of alien. Say, what's not to understand? Um, I hope it's not, uh, I hope it's reasonable to represent you as saying, um, to some extent, drought is self-inflicted. I don't, would you accept that, or what? What is your take on this? Uh, how, how do we, you know that we've come to see that water has become a scarce commodity? Yeah, um, some of it is self-inflicted. Certainly, droughts have always existed, um, and they are definitely exacerbated by climate change. Um, but yeah, there's uh, so much that we're doing that is making water scarcity worse. And some of that is what I've been talking about with kind of healing that surface water, groundwater connection. So, um, you know, if, if we have a healthier groundwater table, and that can be done, uh, there's like a lot of beaver restoration that's starting to happen um, and, and will be coming to California soon because Gavin Newsom just hired or allocated money for five beaver professionals at the state level. So that's very exciting. Um, but uh, anyway, in all these ways, you are 
raising the water table and you're making more water available on the landscape. So when you have water available to plants, um, they're less desiccated, they're less likely to burn. So it can be an important um, hedge against uh, a fire, or like a fire break. Um, and uh, when you have water um, available to, uh, sorry, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> um, yeah, so that's, that's one aspect of it is like helping to heal the water cycle so that that water is available. And, you know, there's a, a rain generation component also um, to having more water on the landscape. And, um, you know, I don't think we really recognize the degree to which the landscape has changed. Like even the beavers alone, you know, 10% of North America was basically a beaver-created wetland. Um, so it was like a much, much wetter place. And when you have more water on the land, you also have more rain. So it's part of, part of the cycle. Um, well, okay, we've gone to beavers. I mean, uh, everyone likes beavers. Um, you like to ask what, what water wants. And it seems that in the case of rivers, they want beavers. Um, why, do water, why does water want beavers? And what, what are some of the other things that people are doing to help out these um, adorable semi-aquatic rodents? Um, well, so that stream picture that I showed of the urban stream, that straight channel, I think a lot of us have come to think that that's what a creek or a river is because that's so much of what we see, not just in cities, but also um, in rural land. Uh, you know, we have these water canals and everything's very straight and denuded, uh, you know, no plants along, along it. Um, but in fact, like a healthy stream system is very complex. Um, you know, it has meanders, it has oxbows, um, there's a riparian corridor of plants like all along it that are very important for all kinds of, of wildlife and also helping prevent erosion and all kinds of things. Uh, so when the beavers come, you know, they are also water engineers. Um, I would argue they're, they're better at it <laughs> than we are. Um, but there, and, and there was a really interesting study in, in Washington state that showed that in their first year of reintroduction, beavers were holding 75 times more water above and below, uh, land, um, than before they were there. So, I mean, that's a major water storage, um, factor, especially as we're losing our snowpack with climate change. That's another way to keep, keep water on the land and to, to slow it down and make it available. Um, in, in the slow season. And then in terms of what water wants with the beavers, I mean, there's a really important habitat component. You know, beavers are ecosystem engineers and um, something like 200 species live in and around beaver ponds, including their predators. Um, there was an interesting camera study that looked at an area where they're going to introduce beavers. And, you know, there was like a couple of squirrels all year. And then the beavers came and they built the pond and then they had mountain lions and bobcats and um, all kinds of other critters, uh, but also like living in the water. And some of the critters who live in the water are, are very important for the health of the fish and the plants and, you know, it's, it's a system. Great. Oh, and I should also add that um, in England, beavers were extirpated. They were gone for 400 years because they were all killed. And they have started bringing them back from Germany and, and the European continent um, and there they're deploying them really for, for flood control. And, you know, a lot of people think that beavers cause flooding, and, and they do to some degree, 
but they're slowing water. And so a lot of English towns are built like right along creeks and with the bigger flows brought by climate change, they're flooding more and more often. And uh, with the beavers slowing the flow, you know, they're holding, that water's still going to go downstream, but over a longer period of time. So you don't have the same flood peak. So then it's not spilling over into the towns the same degree. And some scientists there have been measuring those impacts. It's uh, about 30% uh, less water going through at the flood peak. Great. Um, I want to make sure we have enough time for um, the questions from the audience. Um, uh, let me skip to this question. <clears throat> um, for many of us, and for me, um, it was uh, Chris Stone's um, paper, Should Trees Have Standing, where I first heard about the idea of rivers having rights, legal rights. Um, it sounds crazy at first, but um, uh, it's an, an idea that seems to be catching on in, in some circles. And I should be clear, your book, it only explicitly comes up in the introduction. It's not like you're going, rivers have rights, rivers have rights. But much of what you're saying seems to be amenable to um, this perspective. So um, uh, how might uh, riparian rights be related to slow water? Yeah, the, the rights of nature movement is really interesting. And um, I... I spend part of my time in British Columbia, um, and in Victoria, there's a, an indigenous law program at the university. And in fact, indigenous law already considers water and nature to have rights, so there's a long tradition of that. But in the dominant culture, uh, less so. And what started the movement was this paper from 1972 or something, Do Trees Have Standing? And the movement is growing nationwide, I mean, sorry, worldwide. Um, so Bolivia and Colombia, no, sorry, Bolivia and Ecuador have incorporated rights of nature into their constitutions. Um, and there's a group in the U.S. called Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, I believe. And they started working in Pennsylvania with communities uh, who didn't want fracking in their backyards. And um, they found that the state had given these corporations permission <laughs> to frack in their in their communities and they had no right to prevent that because the state government superseded them and so this legal firm um, started arguing on the basis of, of nature's rights as a way to help them um, gain power and it, this has been a growing movement across the United States in communities um, starting with like trying to prevent fracking, uh, like trying to prevent spreading of biosolids on crop fields, which is basically sewage, um, and then also moving into rights for rivers and wetlands and things like that. And, I mean, even in places like Florida, you're seeing rights for you know pushes to get rights for wetlands. So, what rights does a river have? Um, a river has the right to uh, flow, to conduct its natural cycles and relationships, uh, has a right not to be polluted. Um, so there are different rights, and uh, like the Ganges in India now has rights. Um, there's a river in New Zealand that I won't try to pronounce um, so I don't embarrass myself that has rights. Um, there's a river in Quebec in Canada that now has rights. Um, sometimes these uh, are driven by indigenous peoples for whom these uh, rivers are really important. Um, but it's a really interesting time. Um, and the reason I think that the rights of nature movement is important is because 
it's a way to bring these values into the dominant culture in a way that the dominant culture is also already kind of set up to accept. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of early, but it's definitely growing in momentum. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see how, how people might use that to um, protect water systems. Great. Um, thank you, Erica. Uh, we do have a, one of the attending classes is called um, Water Politics, and I was going to ask a question about it, but I think I'll hand it over to that class to ask their own questions. I'm sure Erica is willing to talk about politics in, in <laughs> California or around the world or more about dams or, or all kinds of things um, that might be of interest to you. Um, but at this point, I'd like to hand it um, over to the audience um, to have questions for Erica Guys. Um, a couple of rules. Um, one, first of all, you do need to use the microphone so that we can hear you and it's recorded. Uh, two, please try to keep your questions brief because, um, you know, we hear, came here to hear the speaker. Um, and three, uh, if it's not too much to ask, if your questions could end with a little squiggly thing that looks like a question mark, uh, <laughs> rather than your own personal dissertation. Uh, your title of your talk was Water Always Wins, but I'd, so I was expecting to see more data or cases of blown out, you know, trapezoidal channels and other things, and you have such great facts. Could you share a little bit of that? kind of idea of when the gray solution doesn't work and how we go from our houses up to the edge to, you know, a beautiful meandering river like you showed. Yeah. I mean, I think there are examples in the news almost every day. I've been sort of obsessively tracking them as I've been reporting this book. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's the flooding in Pakistan this summer. There's the, the rivers in Germany and uh, China going dry this summer. Um, you know, every, everywhere you look, it seems. Um, there was the, the flooding in Germany the, the previous year, um, the flooding in England regularly. Uh, I, I, I could go on, but I'm just kind of uh, citing examples. I think... Um, a lot of the dialogue that you see around these now is acknowledging climate change, which is great. It's like, okay, climate change is big, bringing, you know, more water extremes. But so often the answer is like, well, our infrastructure wasn't built for this particular extreme, so we need a bigger piece of infrastructure. Um, so, yeah, I, what I'm arguing, I guess, is that, you know, we've gone too much in the wrong direction on that, and we need to make more space for water's natural systems again. Um, you know, there's a whole ecosystem services, and there are a lot of those that come from water, and, you know, they're breaking down because we haven't given them the space. And in terms of, like, how you move people back, um, it's tricky. Uh, you know, oftentimes that happens after a disaster or after repeated disasters when people tire of rebuilding and, like, having the same thing happen. Um, you know, there's a whole school of managed retreat. There's a researcher out of the University of Delaware called A.R. Siders, and she's a, a real um, leader on this. And her idea is, like, you know, let's plan ahead to move towards something better. Let's, uh, you know, move back in a, in a just way, um, you know, where we have a, a better, you know, more equitable society. Like, it's an opportunity to do something different and to do lots of things different. 
And I think people think, well, oh, there's not money for it. And um, the Union of Concerned Scientists did a study um, a year or two ago, and it was looking at all of the properties that were expected to flood by 2050, I think. And it was going to cost, I don't know, $1.2 trillion to buy them out. And that sounds crazy, but, you know, we spent a trillion dollars <laughs> during the pandemic. Like, apparently we can do that if we want to. Um, so, uh, of course, not all countries have that kind of money. Certainly places like Bangladesh um, don't have those kinds of, of options. But um, there's a lot can be done. And, I, you know, it's, it, it involves hard community decisions where people have to work together and fight and work out compromises. And I am seeing examples of that more often um, I could go on, but I feel like I should stop. <laughs> Regarding nature has rights, has is there any successful established case law in this country yet? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I haven't been following this super closely because it's a little bit peripheral um, to my book, but um, there are certainly a lot of cases that are uh, coming to trial and it's being tested in a lot of different ways and they are making progress in, in different um, jurisdictions. Um, I, can't, I can't answer that more clearly. <laughs> I, I do know that I think locally the, 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 the cutthroat trout has rights, um, but I don't know very much about it. I'll have to go home and study it. We have a question over here. Hi. Um, I just want to mention Erica is trying to start a slow water movement with this hashtag slow water, and I'm trying to help her. So um, if you guys want to investigate this whole slow water more and um, you want to look up beavers or wetlands or straight, how, you know, curving the rivers again and stuff like that helps with slow water, you can post, and especially because there's a lot of college kids who know how to use social media, maybe help us make it go viral um, and, and look at how slow water can help with drought and with floods. Thank you, Alf. <laughs> oh, thanks for that plug. Um, how about from students? Can we have a question from students? Yes. Um, I'm from the Central Valley here in Bakersfield, and, and that's a place where the situation with uh, historical water rights has become almost untenable. And I know it's a huge problem in California, and I was wondering what your insight was on that situation. Yeah, that's a great question, and um, I, I really believe that water rights here have to be overhauled. Um, and, you know, places have done it. Australia's done it. Colorado's done it. Um, it is possible. It's been very politically untenable. But I think, um, you know, as the situation becomes more severe, there's more political pressure to make a change. And um, I think uh, I, I was just in Sacramento, and I heard from this woman who lives in the Russian River watershed and she said that you know they have one reservoir and it was dry and they also have extreme senior rights holders and so that was an example where the community got together for two years like meeting I don't know every week or every couple of weeks and just hashed it out like how are we going to share this water and ultimately, um, the senior rights holder shared the water with other people in the community. Um, you know, that's maybe not a, a permanent solution. Um, another interesting thing is, one thing I write about in the book is the role in which um, 
storing water underground in California is becoming an increasing um, interest of the state uh, and a focus. And there are these special geological features called paleo valleys um, that exist right along the eastern Sierra because they were formed by the, uh, the ice ages. And they're basically like ancient rivers filled with rock. So water can move into them really quickly. So if you have a big atmospheric river flood, you know, you can move the water there. It can move underground, and then you're helping to, to shore up the water table and, and make that water available for later. Um, so the water rights aspect of that is like um, winter water rights have really not been allocated because most people don't need water in winter for their crops. And so there's kind of a little bit of a gold rush mentality happening where people are like, you know, how are we going to work that out? And I don't think the state has really sorted it yet. I'll also add that, you know, for so long, California treated surface water and groundwater as two separate um, things from a legal perspective. And although the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act that passed in 2014 has sought to kind of overcome that, it it really hasn't. There's a lot of... um, kind of legacy of that that is still uh, preventing that. And until groundwater and surface water are, are managed together from a legal perspective, from a rights perspective for that as well, I think it'll continue to be problematic. But it's just another area in which overhaul is really needed. And Colorado has done that. So that's one model that I haven't looked closely at their model, so I'm, I'm not sure how applicable it would be. But I do hear more... Um, kind of political momentum for that. So hopefully something will change. Great, thank you. Over here, still I want another question from students. Thank you, I'm not hiding behind the lectern. Um, I'm remembering um, the book by William Least Heat Moon River Horse where he traversed the United States by boat from one end to the other and he made the comment to how the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers had been turned into gutters by the Army Corps of Engineers. And I'm remembering my mother, who grew up in Mississippi and lived through the 1927 flood. Can you talk the mic? I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I'm remembering the book by William Least Heat Moon, River Horse, where he traversed the United States from New York Harbor to Seattle by boat of one kind or another. And he made the comment that the Mississippi and the Missouri had been turned into gutters by the Army Corps of Engineers engineers. And I'm remembering stories my mother told me who lived through the 1927 floods of the Mississippi in Mississippi. And I'm wondering, where does the Army Corps of Engineers fit in all this discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The Army Corps of Engineers now has an engineering with nature division. (laughs) So um, they are formally trying to incorporate nature-based solutions in a more uh, systematic way. Uh, it's kind of early days to say how that's actually going to play out. And in some cases, when they've tried it, they've been penalized. Like, um, there were, they did some levee setbacks, you know, moving the levee back from the edge of the river to give the river more access to its floodplain to absorb some of that water when it comes. Um, along the Missouri, um, I don't know, 15 years ago? And uh, about 300 landowners sued them <laughs> for it. You know, they, they said it was a taking. And, and they won. Um, so, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't bode so well, but, um, yeah, I mean, California now is incorporating into its official flood management strategy, levy setbacks, um, 
So, yeah, I, I mean, there's, I think, 3,500 miles of levees on the Mississippi. And what's really interesting about that is that each levy is permitted individually. Like, the Army Corps understands that levees raise water levels in the river. Like, the flood stage in, in St. Louis is 13 feet higher than it was 100 years ago. Um, but yet, every levy is permitted individually as if it wasn't contributing to this bigger system. So, yeah, there's a lot of, and the, you know, there's problems with, the, like, the national flood insurance policy and the idea of you put something behind a levee and it's no longer in a floodplain. I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems there <laughs> that need to be overcome. Um, moving back to the idea of hydrocolonialism that you brought up, where would you say, like, we are in this process? Are we at, like, a turning point in acknowledging and beginning restoration? Or should we expect to see things get worse before they get better? And, like, what would we be looking for to know when we're at that point of when they're getting better? Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think I think of hydrocolonialism as these, like, really big infrastructure projects because even after colonialism was, like, over, you know, you still have the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund who loan money to a lot of developing countries, and a, a lot of times that money is loaned with the condition that they're going to build something big just like, you know, we do. Um, you know, we know best, so do what we do. Um, and in some cases, you know, they're displacing an older system that was working, you know, fairly well. Um, so in the United States, people are starting to recognize all of the environmental problems that dams cause. And in some cases, they're no longer uh, supplying hydro. And, and I think people, too, are recognizing that hydropower is not necessarily as reliable because of climate change. You're having bigger water extremes, because there are some countries in southern Africa where, uh, you know, 96% of the power comes from hydro, and if they have a big drought, then the whole economy shuts down because they don't have any electricity. Um, so anyway, that's all to say that in the United States, there's kind of a dam decommissioning phase that's happening where some dams are being taken out, some big dams are being taken out, and it's pretty exciting, like, how quickly the systems can recover when um, they're given that space. But then in Asia, for example, in Southeast Asia, there's a giant dam building boom happening, and also in South America. Um, and so, like, Laos wants to be the battery of Asia by building all of these dams and using that for, for storage. Um, and uh, in a lot of cases... When dams are built in poorer countries, um, the power that they generate is not for local people. It's exported to richer countries nearby. So, like, Guyana builds dams to sell power to Brazil, or Laos builds dams to sell power to Thailand or to China. Um, you know, like in the Congo, I think 92% of people do not have electricity, and there's a giant dam that they've been trying to build there for decades, and, you know, that money is, or that electricity if it's built, is going to go to, like, mining in South Africa. So that's, that's another aspect of, of the problem. So your question of when, um, definitely not now. <laughs> um, but it is starting to happen here, and, you know, maybe that will spread elsewhere. But, like, in Canada, where I spend part of my time in British Columbia, you know, there's a lot of big rivers, and people are generally excited about the idea that, that um, they have clean power, because uh, it's mostly like 90-something percent hydro in some places. Um, but then they're also continuing to build more when maybe they don't really need it. Anyway. <laughs> Hello. So we've been talking about pipelines 
and California. And that's making me think about my neighbor back home who is super stoked that they're going to be building a pipeline down the California Valley. Are you familiar with this? A water pipeline? Yeah. It'll be happening quite soon, I believe. I don't think I know about this. Do you know the name of it? Uh, oh, the Delta Tunnels? Yes, that's it. Okay. I was going to ask you what you know about it, what that will be doing for us and for the environment. Yeah, I'll just preface this saying that I haven't covered this extensively, so I'm not, don't, don't take what I say as, as gospel. Um, what I know about it is it's a project that's been talked about for decades and has had various starts and stops. Um, so I'm not convinced that it's about to happen, although I believe that I'm, I'm looking at, at Ken, who's also a reporter. Um, I believe that uh, Newsom does support it. Um, so... I guess its prospects are looking decent. Um, but certainly people in the Delta are very concerned about it. The Delta is already a very, very, very sick ecosystem um, for various reasons, but partly because of all the water that leaves there and comes to Southern California. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I live in San Francisco, so I hear a lot more of the Northern California perspective on that, where people are pretty against it. Um, and uh, I know that there have been different versions of it to try to, you know, reduce the environmental impacts. Um, but as far as I can tell, it's still pretty much an environmental disaster. So, yeah, I, I would say do more research because I, I don't know a ton about it, but that, that's what I know about it. It seems like through cities like Santa Barbara and bigger ones, most rivers are channelized. Um, do you think de-channelization is a reasonable thing to hope for, or do you think that's out of the question? I, I think it's it's not out of the question, and we should hope for that. Um, you know, also a lot of uh, creeks are buried, um, so you know the the phrase daylighting means basically bringing it back up to the surface and, and opening it up, and so. You know, a channelized river is not flexible, and it's not able to maintain itself. It's a very sick system. And so the extent to which we can make space for it and make room for it to conduct its systems, you know, we can reduce a lot of these problems that we're having. Um, Of course, in many, many places, people have built on top of it or have built right up to the edge of it, and and so that is a tricky thing. But... um, the reason why I say that cities should uh, have like an historical ecology plan is that, you know, we tend to think of cities as static, like it's there and it's always going to be there. But in fact, um, a lot changes in cities over time. Over a 50-year period, a lot of buildings are removed and replaced. And so if a city knows where the water is and knows where to prioritize making space for it, they can have a 50-year plan, a 100-year plan, where, okay, if that building is coming down for some reason, you know, maybe we're not going to authorize another development on top of it. Maybe we're going to restore that space to water. So there are opportunities um, to do things. And, and I would just add, you know, that motto again, like every little bit helps. So um, just because you can't totally restore it now, you know, you can do what you can now. So like this project in Seattle is two stretches of total 1,600 feet, which is not much at all, and yet it's already had a really big impact, and they're finding other areas along the stream where they can do similar projects. So if you can take the kind of a longer view, um, 
I think it can work in that way. I think we have time for one more question, at least. Um, while we're waiting, uh, don't forget when we're done that uh, Cluster Flows is here. So please, if you're please. Using your own experiences and research, would you be willing to comment on and maybe even compare the very religiously connected idea of ecological dominion and the growing international environmentalist activist movements? kind of the relationship between the two. What was, what was the first one? The very religiously connected idea of ecological dominion, of this anthropocentric idea of human dominion over the environment. And, and how that connects with the global environmental movement? Mm -hmm. Or comment on one or the other. That's a very good question. <laughs> I mean, I'm someone who's always cared about the environment, and I've always been interested in it, and I've always felt a, a kind of connection to it. And so, you know, I think if I, I weren't a journalist, I might be an environmental activist. Um, so in my mind, there's a very close link by understanding the innate value of other beings, non-human beings, and their right to exist. I don't think... From, from a moral perspective, I believe that things are not here just to serve humans and that they have their own right to, to exist and live their lives and do their own thing. And um, so I think there are, I, I, I think that a lot of people in the environmental movement have similar values. That's my perception of it. Um, and I think the degree to which we can make space for natural systems, it, it serves many things. Like, um, you know, it can prevent flooding, it can prevent drought. There's a climate reduction component, like in the carbon storage in these ecosystems. There's a biodiversity, you know, support for other life. Um, we're also in a biodiversity crisis, which you guys probably know about. Um, and so all of these things are linked. And the extent to which we can have a little humility and accept that other things also need space and also, uh, you know, a lot of these problems are linked and, and can be solved together. And, you know, there's some interesting software <laughs> called um, Esri uh, and they have an Arc Hydro program. And so these are ways in which scientists and planners are modeling many, many of these complex elements together and then being able to tweak, okay, like if we change that one little thing, what impact is that going to have? So I think there are ways to think about those questions together. And um, your question was really hard. I'm not sure if I answered it. <laughs> Tough one. Well, let's all, let's all thank uh, Erica, guys, for a wonderful talk. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.